Hello, my name is John Hendren, and you're listening to BachCast, episode 61. And in this episode, we are going to sort of pick up where we left off sometime before. Um, earlier in the series, we looked at a number of the sonatas for violin and keyboard by Johann Sebastian Bach, um, BWV. One thousand. Uh, it ends at 1019, if I remember correctly, we're about 1013, 14. Uh, it's a series of six sonatas, and they're somewhat unique because they're written in a trio texture until we get to the, the final one in G. That last one, the sixth one, is a little weird. But the others follow basically a model that Bach is writing in a trio texture. The second upper voice is in the right hand, and of course the violin takes the other upper voice along with the harpsichord. And those are somewhat unique in that a cello or um, basso continuo isn't specifically called for, although some performers will add a cello to it. Um, The mainstream recordings that you'll find typically don't add another bass instrument. And so you have those, those six as a set. So if we look at one more number up, BWV 1020, uh, we are confronted with a very interesting piece of music because uh, it has been performed uh, both for the flute, for the oboe, and I can't find the source for that, but the recording we just heard is a, uh, a complete recording of it um, arranged by the group known as Red Priest. And Red Priest is comprised of a keyboard player, a cellist, and a recorder player, along with a violinist. So they they form themselves as a quartet uh, in some of their recordings. And this one is from the album Johan, I'm Only Dancing. And as much as they push the boundaries using uh, historical instruments, uh, they are definitely a spirited ensemble, and I actually enjoy some of their performances very much so. And they record this, and in the listing, it's listed as an arrangement from the oboe sonata, and I've I've not heard it in that guise. But uh, who's to say that somebody hasn't recorded with oboe? Um, more often than not, this is thought of as one of the flute sonatas. But the flute sonatas are in the 1030s, and so this one's a little weird because it's 1020. Um, I did some research on this, as uh, I would encourage you to, because uh, it gets interesting. Um, Off the Bach Cantatas website, they have listings of various Bach works and some history behind them, Um, and it's very interesting. They also have a number of reviews and discussions. Um, It it really is a, uh, if you are a fan of Bach, this website, I I can't... um, encourage you not to to go visit. Um, I also have signed up to receive their emails. Uh, there are discussions, and of course those discussions are primarily around box vocal works, the cantatas, but you'll find some useful information here about other pieces as well. And in, in particular, they're looking at three sources for this particular piece, BWV 1020. And the, uh, the last notation on the front page when you get here is kind of interesting that it this piece does not appear 
in the Neue Bach Ausbaug, um, the, the new Bach edition that came out in 2006, they dropped it uh, because there has been such uh, discussion that uh, they don't think it's by Johann Sebastian Bach. And there is uh, discussion whether it's written by his son, C.P.E. Bach. There are a number of attributions to Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. And then there's also some doubters with him as well. Um, one of the ideas that uh, is floated around in here is that, uh, and it looks like um, this is by Keichi Kubota, um, published 2004 in Tokyo, but not given enough background by the editors at the Bakkenhada website, that this could, could have been perhaps a collaborative effort by Bach and his son. So why do people think this was written by Bach? Well, before I get into all that, I'm going to go ahead and expose you to the opening movement. Uh, we're going to listen to um, a performance by Ashley Solomon and Terry Charleston. Yes, Charleston. I want to make sure I said it right. Uh, Terry Charleston. Uh, they did, I believe, two recordings on the Challenge Classics label. Uh, recording box flute works, and of course they include this one. And uh, let's see if let's see what you think of the style. Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. We'll listen, give it a listen, and then see what you think. Surprise! Some people would question: Is it by Johann Sebastian Bach? There's there's a formality to the way it's written, uh, and what I would uh, have you listen for uh, is is there imitation present, and um, that's that's a big usually a big indicator, especially with Bach's faster movements. Now, if we look at the other pieces like B two V one thousand fifteen fourteen thirteen. Uh, those pieces are all rendered in four movements, and this one is three, fast, slow, fast. So just off the bat, we might be going, well, but why? But the, the, certainly there were three movement pieces that Bach could have seen, and that could have been totally normal. But it's that formality at the beginning. I mean, there is a true introduction by the keyboard, which gives it a whiff of, of being slightly mo more modern than Bach. Um and so you have this formality, uh, you have this sort of fast figure in the right hand, but you have this very well-wrought left hand. The bass in this piece uh, has a, has a it's, it's very um, formal. In, in What I mean by that is uh, it follows a structure, there's a simple idea, and it's, it's sort of just spun out. And it's done in such a way that you, you can almost, it's the most interesting part of the opening, I think, is the bass line. And then, of course, we get the flute part that comes in, uh, plays on top, but the flute part isn't imitating the right hand of the harpsichord. Instead, 
that right hand is acting more as an accompaniment. And so right off the bat, the, the formality here is something we typically don't see in Bach. In Bach, um, at least the authentic Bach that we all agree that was written by Johann Sebastian Bach, there is that sort of equal playing field that the bass is lively, the bass has the formality. So I like the bass line idea here. I, I could go with Bach on the bass line. But it's the way that uh, right hand is treated along with the soloist and then also the fact that Bach typically doesn't give us like a little introduction like that and then just lead us in. It, it whiffs of something a little later in terms of a time period. But you never know. Maybe CPE Bach had an example that he wanted to base his piece on and dad was going along with it. Who, who knows? We're, we're probably never going to uh, definitively know unless someone finds a new source, right? We can conjecture all we want, but let's say find a new source. And, and so it may not be by Bach, right? But it is labeled by Bach. When you look for recordings, you'll see still listed by Johann Sebastian Bach. But why? And so when you go back to those sources, and again, I, I would point you to the article from the Bach Cantata website, is that the copyists, they don't have an original in Bach's hand. That would be smoking gun. That would be, oh, definitively, you know, he, he wrote it, he signed it. But there's an attribution to Bach, and it's not even always written out as Johann Sebastian Bach. So there is some um, question about, who, first of all, who wrote it, and then what Bach wrote it. Um, and so I think stylistically, the easy thing to do is to, is to point to one of the sons. So that be as it may, I'm going to play for you the third movement uh, to get a style of what that's like. I like these two outer movements. Um, I don't care who wrote them. I think it's a neat piece of music. And so by that alone, I want you to enjoy it as well. Uh, so this is the third movement. And again, we're going to hear the, uh, the flute by Ashley Solomon. Stopping it before it goes on, but I think you could almost hear the binary structure of this, right? That was the A section. It gets repeated. Then we get a B section, um, which is interesting for a Bach sonata like this. Not that Bach never used repeats. He does in in his works, um, but it just strikes me as a little odd. What's not odd and what is more like Bach to do is in this third movement, there is some imitation between the right hand and the flute part, uh, which uh, 
which gives maybe a little more shade to being from Johann Sebastian Bach, or at least his circle, right? Um, and it starts out, it's less formal, I'm going to say, because it doesn't, it doesn't, we're already established in the key of G minor. Of course, the middle movement's in a major key. We go back to G minor, and then it just takes right off, and there is imitation between the right hand and the flute part. Uh, to me, the left hand, the bass part, is still kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot of those repeated figures, um, which is then sort of echoed in the theme for the upper part. It's at a faster tempo. Which, to me, is is kind of a curiosity, right? Um, the repeated figure on the harpsichord, that da, 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 it's kind of catchy. It's, it's not something you typically hear. But if we were to go back in time, uh, maybe 150 years or so, and we're back in, uh, eventually we'll end up in Venice, but uh, the, the music of Monteverdi, uh, as he moved to different places, kind of followed him, obviously. He was writing it in different places, but he came up with this idea of the seconda pratica, uh, uh, a new way of writing music, uh, the second practice. And one of the uh, tenets of this practice was the stile concitato, uh, which was um, basically sort of an angry style um, of writing music. And that was represented by a repeated figure. And here we are in a minor key. We're here, these repeated figures. It's almost a nod back to, to me, uh, an Italian style. Uh, but it sounds weird to me on a flute, right? Uh, you have to tongue, ta -ta 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 -ta. and that to me just doesn't sit well. It doesn't. It doesn't to me come across as an idiomatic way to write for the flute. Uh, not that flute players don't do that, and I certainly wouldn't say that to a contemporary flute player because that repeated tonguing and flutter tonguing and all the cool things you can do with articulation, absolutely make flute music so interesting. And so this is either very forward-thinking in my guise, uh, the way I'm thinking about this. Uh, it's a Baroque piece, but it's using this repeated tonguing, which is kind of weird. It's sort of a... Uh, it could also be a throwback to the stile concitato. Or the flute is an arrangement of a piece for an instrument where repeated figures tend to make more sense. And this is where I'm going to give you a taste of a different performance. This is one that I've lived with for a while I really like. It's the violinist Reinhard Goebel, and he recorded it uh, on violin with the harpsichord. And so let's give that a lesson and see if it's any more convincing to you in this third movement from BWV 1020.
got actually two examples there. The first one, of course, I announced was Reinhard Goebel, uh, former leader of Musica Antiqua Köln. And that recording comes from a set that I acquired uh, on the DG Archive label. It was entitled Kammermusik, uh, Chamber Music, and I believe it was recorded probably around 8182, 1981, 82. Um, I really love his sound. The, the sound of his violin has always um, uh, been special to me. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that I think the performance is in any way perfect, but I think... Um, I think just studying the style and the sound that he uh, gets from his instrument is rather special. And I also like the accompaniment on harpsichord. I believe that one is probably um, paired with Hank Bowman. Um, It's either Hank Bowman or Robert Hill. But I like the ornamentation going on in the harpsichord part. Uh, I don't always get that when I compare other recordings. And then I gave you sort of a surprise, uh, yet another version for the violin. And this is Amandine Bayer, um, uh, the French violinist. And she is uh, recording this not under the authorship. Uh, it does not say Johann Sebastian Bach on that album. She records for Zigzag Territories. And I believe that's actually a Zigzag CD. Um and she is, that album is dedicated to the violin sonatas of uh, C.P.E. Bach. And uh, the forte piano is certainly um, uh, an appropriate instrument for C.P.E. Bach. And I think it, um, there's nothing wrong with that in terms of this performance. Um, I think that bass line that I'm attracted to, which I think is so well crafted in, in all the movements, really stands out. Um, And then, of course, there are some new dynamic possibilities that she and her partner uh, take advantage of. And I'm struggling here to identify the partner because it's written so small on my display. Edna Stern is the pianist. Um... Yeah, it's just it's listed under the title of Zigzag. And you might want to know the year, the year on that. Let's see if I have it in front of me. I do not because I did another search. So give me one second. Yeah, 2005. So there's a little bit of age on that one. So, BV 1020 may not actually be a BWV at all, Um, but it beguiles us, I think, for those of us who actually care who wrote it, and frankly, probably at the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much unless we're actually focusing our attention on Bach himself and and saying, well, what was... What were the high points of Bach, or what were were the the limits of his style, or what... um, you know, what did he write for this instrument or that instrument? And what did he have to say? So my takeaway from this piece is, is that it's it's not a poorly written piece. It definitely has some stylistic um, aspects to it, which I've hopefully highlighted for you, at least in the outer movements that, for me, 
tend to suggest that uh, the guess that it is not a totally uh, authentic piece by Johann Sebastian Bach could hold some water. Um, but nevertheless, um, why were, are there multiple sources where the name Bach is written on the score? And maybe we'll never know. But that is um, that's par for the course when you're interested in older music. Lots of unanswered questions. And I would tell you, you know, those are interesting things to contemplate. But at the end of the day, it's, it's all about the music. And what's interesting beyond the authorship, of course, for me, is what what is the intended treble instrument? Is it an oboe? Uh, is it uh, was it originally a flute piece? Was, was it originally a violin piece? If I were a guessing person, I would guess that it originated as a violin sonata and then uh, was transcribed for flute um, or just played on flute. Uh, certainly, we know pieces of the period that were uh, appropriate on both instruments. And talking with friends, they've. They've been in situations where they've played with uh, soloists on either instrument. Uh, and it can work. Idiomatic, perhaps more for the violin. But I'll let you decide if this is a piece that, uh, you know, we're not having a conversation about it, but definitely put the thought in your head as you contemplate uh, this piece. Um, does it matter to you what instrument's played on? Um are you like me and you want to collect multiple recordings so you can sort of hear it from all angles? Uh, certainly, as if you've gotten to know me through several of these episodes, that is something that, that I tend to go for. I'm not sure there's any such thing as one perfect recording. And today we've heard from Ashley Solomon. We've heard from Red Priest. We've heard from um, Reinhard Goebel, who's also listed as as his ensemble, Musica Antigua Cone, and then lastly, Amandine Bayer and Edna Stern. Yes, Edna Stern. I'm gonna look up Edna Stern. I, that's the only recording I have with that with that name. Her uh, partner in this uh, pursuit. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, you can read music reviews and find more episodes. On my website, bieberfan.org, that's spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. And thank you, as always, for listening.